and good morning, Gary. And good evening, Jonathan, here in the beginning of the Christmas season. I guess one of the things I have to ask is, does uh, does Australia start Christmas in roughly the end of September like we do here in the States? It's not quite as clearly defined, I think, because we don't have the whole Black Friday stuff that we're talking about on the yeah. Lost podcast. But pretty much, you know, uh, as soon as we, uh, you get to about, I guess, the beginning of October, suddenly Christmas decorations start to appear. And by early November, it's pretty much in full swing. And mm. now it's just madness and bedlam everywhere out there with people, you know, doing their Christmas shopping. And probably today, I think, we'll put up our Christmas tree here at home and confront the fact that we haven't done anywhere near enough Christmas shopping uh, to actually, you know, fulfill all of our gift-giving obligations. And, yeah. so well, it's- I have a solution to that because, as I probably have mentioned before on this show, I have 18 grandkids to buy for. Mm-hmm. And... And my rule is once once they're past 10, they get a gift card somewhere. Yeah. I don't care if it's a gift card for an oil change or something. I just <laughs> buy gift cards and I hand them out. <laughs> well, on one hand, that that's excellent. But it doesn't really work when you're the parent of the 10 and 11-year-old girls that live at my house. Uh, I think they might be a little bit non-plus to get a gift card for an oil change. I told you last year when we were talking about the same thing that I had to go buy, I had to go into pink, I had to go into the the the, the tween section of Victoria's Secret, which, in my opinion, shouldn't even exist, but no, it does. It, it sounds pretty and wrong. It's it's strange. It's it, it's weird, and I'm I'm an aging you know uh, yeah. single white going into Victoria's Secret and asking for the kids section. Um, which that sounds so wrong. It's not good. But, but the thing is, kids that age, once they get past the girls, I should say, and I know this is going to sound sexist, but it's absolutely true, and I can get mm-hmm. all my girls on the podcast saying, they do not want guys picking out stuff for them from someplace like Victoria's Secret. Can I just and say, God, can I interrupt? You don't want to pick out well, stuff well, for 11-year-olds at Victoria's Secret. No, you don't. But can I also say, that particular thing doesn't sound um, sexist. It sounds sort of anti-squick. I mean... Uh, Older men picking out lingerie for the under-13 set sounds distinctly squicky and horrible. Yeah. Most of the stuff in the pink section is not lingerie, and I shouldn't even know that. Well, you know what? I don't. I leave that all to my dear wife. Right, okay. And and that is, again, maybe that's a sexist thing. I hope not. But when it comes to that stuff, I kind of go, I will cede this territory to your expertise because I'm unfamiliar with it and I'm desperately eager to remain unfamiliar with that part of things. Yeah, exactly. So, so the girls, I mean, once they're past 14, they basically want iPads um, (laughs) or 13 or something like that, uh, which is not terribly realistic. So the other thing I do is I'll go on Amazon and, uh, and I admit I do all my toy shopping through Amazon and I'll look at a bunch of toys that look cool and I'll order them. And if some kid thinks he's going to want them, uh, fine. I mean, there's a radio-controlled uh, helium-filled shark mm-hmm. that you send through your house at about a height of six feet. And I thought, that's really cool. And some kid's going to want that. And if they don't want it, I'm going to have a radio-controlled floating shark in my house, <laughs> which I think is cool. I think it's cool, too. But some of us are, some of us are plainly not ever going to grow up, are we? <laughs> no. <laughs> You'll note I said we, so at least there's that. Mm. You see, I'm at that, that age where... Um, 
really I'm impossible to buy for, I guess, because I have a job and I can buy casual things, and no one's going to buy me the you know thousands of dollars worth of stereo gear I would probably indulge myself in. So right. And I, and the hardest thing, of course, is for many, many years before I became involved in the field, and suddenly we're doing my Christmas guide, uh, our seasonal guide to the field, um, they used to be able to buy me books and things. Well, who can buy me books now? Mm-hmm. I, mean, can I, I mean, do people buy you books, Gary? No, generally, well, sometimes people try to buy me books, but keep in mind I have a non-literary family. I'm the only yeah. one who does a lot of reading in it. And a couple of years ago, um, somebody bought me Twilight. <laughs> It was the sort of thing that they thought, well, it's got vampires, and I read stuff that has to do with vampires, and they'd heard of it, and they bought it. And I'm glad they bought it because I started reading it. Okay. And I thought, okay, uh, until it, until the plot gets going, it's okay. <laughs> Fair I mean, enough. She does, a pretty good, she does a pretty good job of describing what it's like to go to a remote high school in Washington State where you're not popular. Yeah. Um, and, and then it kind of goes downhill from there, but I'm glad I read part of it, and if they hadn't gotten that for me, 10 years ago, um, somebody got me the, uh, the Harry, some Harry Potter books, Yeah, which I just wouldn't have bought on my own, I wouldn't have had otherwise, that's why I read the first couple of Harry Potter books, so I, I appreciate what they're doing, Yeah, uh, but by now they figured out that I get so many books in the mail that um, there's not much point in it. Yeah, I mean, I will say the kind of thing which... I really tend to appreciate is almost impossible for somebody else to buy. And this is probably true of any genre file type who's been, you know, who's had an income for any period of time. You know, like last year, I think I was given a copy of The Pass Through Tomorrow, a first edition of that, which was a phenomenal mm. gift. Um, but predicting that kind of thing is almost impossible to do on somebody else's behalf. You know, I guess I can go through and I can make a list. Uh, yeah, and, uh, yeah, but, but yeah, uh, when my brother was alive, we would exchange presents like that for a long time, and it was really cool because I was doing my um, dissertation on David Lindsay, the yeah, yeah. fantasy, the voyage to Arcturus. My brother tracked down a first edition of Devil's Tour, which was his third novel. Yeah, there only, and I've since found out there may be a hundred copies of this known anywhere in the world. <laughs> and and he so I and I tracked down a copy of first edition of uh, of Dark Carnival, Bradbury's first book. Mm-hmm. And, and we could do that sort of thing. Unfortunately, neither of us uh, got to the point where we could spend thousands of dollars. <laughs> well, I don't even want thousands of dollars. I mean, I've said this before. I mean, I, I, the uh, copy of Pass Through Tomorrow is, I think, a seventh printing. Mm-hmm. And I bought myself a signed copy of the first edition of The Dispossessed when I was at uh, World Fantasy the other week, or the other month. But I have to say, it was a third printing or a fourth printing. So it wasn't really worth that much in terms of dollars, but yeah. it, it gave me what I wanted, you know, which was a book that looked like the first edition that was nice and neat and cool and I'm happy to have. I'm not a real collector collector, but I like the older books and the way they look, so it was good. Anyway, I was going to say, yeah, yeah. In, in terms of collecting, no, uh, I, it, because I, I feel self-conscious about this uh, because <laughs> I'm not a collector. I mean, I yeah. have a lot of books. I have a lot of books that are reasonably uncommon, That some of which I simply bought to have. I mean, I... I'm old enough to have bought the Arkham House edition of The House on the Borderland when you could still buy it new. Um, you are old. Well, I mean, Arkham House, keep in mind, they, they print 3,000 copies of these oh, things. And they would be in stock for like 30 years after. I know, that. I know. So so there was a time when you could do that. Uh, but I, I don't uh, lust after, I don't spend lots and lots of time 
going to used bookstores looking None. for rarities and that sort of thing. And um, when I bought, when I was a kid, there was a place in Kansas City, Missouri, where you could buy lots and lots of pulp magazines. Mm-hmm. And I bought tons of them, not not as a collector. I didn't know which ones were important. I mean, early 40s Amazing Stories or Amazing Stories Annual, which is like 360 pages or yeah. something with um, stories. And, and I read them, which I've since found out you're not supposed to do that at all. No, you can't be doing that. I figured, <laughs> I'm not going you know, I'm, I'm to see stories by Captain S.P. Meek in anthologies. I'm not going to see Blitzkrieg in the past by whoever wrote that Um and so I wanted to get a sense of what it was like to read pulp magazines yeah. as pulp magazines. Yes. And I'm well, glad I did. But as a collector, I was doing the most irresponsible, horrible thing. <laughs> no, you weren't. You're doing what, what a reader should do. I will say I tried to infect our mutual friend, Elisa Krasnstein, with this a little bit. Because when we were at World Fantasy, we walked into the dealer's room and someone had a first edition of – was it the, the Arkham edition of the Joanna Russ collection? Uh, the Zanzibar Cat, yeah, for thirty or forty bucks. That's I'm, very reasonable. Yeah, yeah, it was. And I'm going. You should get that. You should totally get that. It's a you're like you know you're a feministy person, and it's Joanna Russ, and it's a first edition, and it's really nice, and it's affordable. And she was like, mm. and then we came back to get it like the next day, and someone else had bought it, which which, which is actually you know it tells you a lot about what you should do when you're traveling. You should always take advantage of these things. That's true. Um, but one of the things here's an example of how bad a collector I am. I don't even I, I, I never think to ask people to autograph books as a matter of fact I think at some point probably last year in Columbus I asked you to autograph I think one of the Eclipse books I think that's the only thing of yours I ever had autographed uh, I've had people visit here I've had you know um, well when I was younger I had Phil Farmer autograph mm-hmm. but I you know I, I mean I've had China's been here, and 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 Neil and and Crowley and so forth, and I've got their books. And I never even think uh, to get out a pile of books and have them autographed because it seems rude. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I mostly agree, agree with you, but then I've made one or two exceptions, and I'm trying to go along with this idea that, and I was again talking about this out yesterday, that you should that you, that you should make a connection with some of these people, whether they're your friends or not. You know, it's that whole thing of you know, being at Con Francisco in 1993, which I was, and not uh-huh. saying hello to Fred Paul and saying I'd loved his work. Or, in fact, yeah. being at World Fantasy this year and not saying hello to James P. Blaylock and saying, gosh, I love your work. Um, I know. Last, when we were in Columbus, you know, I made a point. Mm-hmm. I bought a copy of the Canadian first edition of Under Heaven mm-hmm. and I got Guy to sign it, you know, because. I love his work, and I've loved his work since 1982 or whatever it was when The Summer Road came out. And it was the right thing to do. It's, it's worth letting them know as well. I think that's true. And I think that in terms of making a connection with somebody, uh, that can become very important. The, uh, uh, it's funny. Last night I was uh, – I, I, I might as well give a plug to this because it's going to be available at least in the States on December 23rd. But I was listening to a taping of a – national public radio program called Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which is a very funny program with yep. comedians on it. It's been on for years. And uh, Neil Gaiman was one of the guests. Uh, and that's why I went. And we, we were at a bar afterwards, and we were comparing stories like this. I was telling him, for example, the one time I met R.A. Lafferty mm-hmm. was at a Worldcon here in Chicago. And it was it was not the kind of story which you'd want to 
tell a lot because he was not in good shape. Let's yeah. be yeah. honest. He was falling asleep. He had been drinking a lot. Mm-hmm. It's not too different from all the other stories you meet about reading R.A. Lafferty, <laughs> uh, meeting, uh, meeting R.A. Lafferty. Yeah. But he... He was he was recognizing the fact that there was somebody there among all these young people who really liked his stuff, and as as much as he drifted off every five minutes, you could see he appreciated that. Yeah. And it turned out Neil's experience with meeting Fritz Leiber was much the same. Yeah. Uh, it was at a World Fantasy Convention again here in Schaumburg or in this in, in one of the suburbs of Chicago, and and Fritz was very tired and 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 very sleepy, and Neil was just like. Uh, I, I want you to know how important you are. And I know what that means to those writers because the other weird experience, and I know I am sound like I'm name dropping, but we're talking about the importance of letting older writers know who they are. Hmm. Uh, when the Nebula Awards banquet was in, um, I think, Los Angeles about 10 years ago, and Philip Jose Farmer was getting the Grand Master Award. Yes. And Neil was the master of ceremonies there. Neil had never met Phil. Yeah. And he asked me to introduce them, and I did. And to be honest, Phil had never heard of Neil Gaiman. Yeah, uh, he like a lot of older writers. He doesn't read anything in the field anymore. No, he hasn't for years and years. But later, I explained to him who Neil was, and he thought, "Gee, that's really nice to think that people who are that popular still yeah. grew up reading my stuff." So, so I know firsthand that when you say to an older writer, especially that you really like their stuff, and I'm not putting Guy K in the category no, of older no, writer. No, no, no. By and large, writers do like to hear that. Yes. I mean, I think you've got to sort of take social cues, of course. You know, if you're at a convention and you see your favorite writer having breakfast with one of their friends, that's not the moment. But uh, if you put it within normal social context and how people would approach these things, I think it's not just a valuable thing. You know, look, there may be some writer who would prefer that, that you didn't, or they may have heard it so often that maybe it doesn't mean that much to them. But I do. I, I've come to, to believe that it's important. And for those writers that you actually care about their work, I mean, then getting a book signed, yeah, I think that's a nice thing. Mm-hmm. And actually, you know, you're saying that you, know, you wouldn't do it when you've got China Mievel uh, around at your house. But in some ways, that's the time. Uh, because, yeah, because it's not a generic mechanical signing when you have 500 people in a line or you're at world fantasy and they have the great big mass signing on the Friday night when they get 300 people sitting at tables That's in true. an enormous hall and you walk past. This is someone you're going, you've made contact with, they know you, you know them, and you're willing to break through that kind of barrier a little bit and say, um, I like your work and I'd like you to sign it for me. It's, and you know, it's always a little bit weird. I mean, I've had a couple of friends ask me to sign stuff and you're going, um, um, what do I say to someone who I really know? But it's, right. but it's, it's a good thing to do. So yeah. Anyway, no, I think it's true. And I, anyway, yes, we've uh, waffled we for a while. <laughs> we have been waffling already. We're not supposed to ramble out of the box. How's your week? Well, we're talking been? about the, we're talking about the, the, uh, the etiquette of asking people to sign books. I mean, and I don't think that's irrelevant to a lot of our people. One of the things I will add to that is that, uh, writers, the writers that I know, even when they're in line with 300 to 400 people, and you always want to go to the person next to that person in line. You know, yeah. You're, you're, you're at a line, you're, you're looking at Gene Wolfe's line or Neil Gaiman's line or um, whatever, and, and somebody is sitting right next to them with nobody in line. And I almost, I've done this actually once or twice. I've gone out and bought books to get signed by those people. But even the most popular writers have a kind of radar uh, when there are people that, are getting books to sign yeah. in order to resell them. 
Yes. Versus people who are real admirers, and, yes. and, and you can pick that up very easily. I, I have to but say, that, yeah, sorry. Okay, no, as I, as I say, we can, we can leave this topic now. Okay, we will, but I just, there's one area. I mean, I've been talking on and off about the San Diego World Fantasy that we went that I went to. And okay. I've made, you know, I, I, it lacked energy, and it was physically diffused, da-da-da. But the one thing I have to take my hat off to them for was the way they handled the mass signing. Because really? Well, because Neil was part of the mass signing, right? Yeah. Well, Neil is a mass signing all by himself. Of course. And what they did was they seated him at the far back corner of the hall. Yeah. And he was ah. right. He was right beside a set of double side doors, which were kept closed the whole time. But everybody mm -hmm. else, you walked up and you stood in front of them. Neil had this little queue of about four or five people that trickled towards the door. And every time that got cleared, they'd open the door again and it would fill up again. So nobody That's was made funny. embarrassed or aware of the fact that when you looked out those doors, that queue went out of the building and never thinned out for two or three hours. So they saved people from that kind of embarrassing, awkward thing of sitting beside someone who has the biggest um, you know, uh, queue in the, uh, in the world when you maybe yeah. only have a normal-sized human being's queue. Or have no queue at all, which yeah. is the case of many, many people. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but but the, the, I, I guess the point I, I I would make about approaching, especially aging writers that you've admired and maybe maybe never seen before, uh, because I've had many experiences, and I suspect you have too. Well, the experience of talking to Lafferty was like this. I was the only person in the room wanting to talk to him. Yes. And I was, but part of part of me wanted to scream to the room, "You idiots! Don't you know who you've got here?" And part of, and I didn't want to embarrass him, but there th that happens quite a bit. There are people who believe that they're forgotten yes. uh, when they're not. Or yes, and I, and it, you know, as long as you're as long as you're polite and hopefully bathed recently, then going up and letting somebody know. There's very few writers that I've found who don't like being appreciated by somebody who understands their work. Right. I mean, one of the examples, and this person, the writer, is not forgotten at all. But I remember when I saw. Robert Silverberg first meet China Mieville. And mm -hmm. now China had only just got Perdido Street Station out. It was getting a little bit of a buzz. And I think Bob was a little bit like, you know, like sort of the, the wary old dog in the yard kind of thing. You know, that kind of, right. who, who's this young guy and what's he doing here? And China, who was a very genuine and fresh person to, you know, like easy person to talk to, came in and plainly was just a a gushing fan of Silverberg's work and understood it and read it and totally disarmed Bob because he was the fan guy telling him that he loved his work in a nice way. So taking five minutes to do that is always worthwhile. Anyway. Absolutely. Yes. Anyway. How's your week been in science fiction other, other than that? Other than going to the radio taping, I've been doing some, uh, I've been doing a lot of work on, on, on this project I keep alluding to, which I'll be able to talk about soon. Um, and, and reading stuff we talk about every once in a while putting out notices that books that people ought to keep their eye out for, I guess, even though I haven't finished these and won't be reviewing them for a couple of months. We've already talked about Margot Lanigan's novel, yes. which is one of the things people should watch for in 2012. I'm um, in the midst of reading um, uh, Hide Me Among the Graves. Oh, the new, uh, the new Tim, Tim Powers. Fantastic. How's and it going? It's fun. It's a lot of fun. I think uh, I've, I'm not finished with it, so I'm not going to, uh, make any conclusions. Uh, it splits in half uh, right in the middle. Uh, 
And in some ways, it's a it's it's a sequel almost once removed to the stress of her regard. Mm -hmm. uh, and people who liked the kind of uh, uh, crypto historicals that he was writing uh, with the stress of her regard, which goes all the way back to the Anubis Gates, uh, I think are going to be very pleased by it. I I've talked to people. I I actually thought that when he was moving into novels like Declare, he was doing much more mature work as a novelist. The character yeah. relationships were more complicated. The plots got more complicated. There were still spectacular uh, special effects toward the yeah. end of that book. Yeah. But I've also talked to people who thought, I want I, I want Tim to write the kind of stuff he used to write when he was writing the Anubis Gates. Yes. And what he's doing is something in between. He's doing, you've got a lot of the same, uh, it's basically the same supernatural structure as the stress of her regard. And, um, the the linking of uh, the linking short novel, which was published in his collection, The Bible Repairman, mm -hmm. uh, about Edward Trelawney, is 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 really the glue that cements that book to this book. Um, but the book stands completely on its own. And I'm thinking, okay, here's an interesting example of a writer who reached great success with early books, which I loved as as much as anyone did. Actually, I liked the Drawing of the Dark. Uh, I love which that was book. Even it's the best the best fantasy novel ever written about beer. <laughs> uh, two, two, of, two of my loves in one uh, in, in one book, and I thought, okay, that is that was the I, as, 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 as I've said this to Tim, so I don't feel self conscious. That was the book I had most fun reading. The book which I thought was the most accomplished might have been Declare, um, mm -hmm. but I can see why people who wanted just the sheer fun of the earlier novels might have thought Declare is too. Graham Greenish or something. I'm, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. I mean, really? <clears throat> allowing that. I mean, I adore Drawing of the Dark, and I think it is his most fun book to read. Mm -hmm. And I loved Anubis Gates with a very great passion. I think his most accomplished book is actually Last Call, uh, which, um, I, which I think is just spectacular. I think it is. Uh, I, I guess. The, the, the reason I mentioned Declaris is more or less it seems to me a standalone and Last Call became part of the Fisher King series. But I don't think the um, Fisher King series, I mean, this is it. I, 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 and it's an interesting um, kind of thing because it happens with some writers. I'm apostate, if I have the term correctly, when it comes to Tim. I have loved his stuff, but he's written a few things that I don't care for. And I really didn't bond with the most recent book. And I'm wondering if this new book is the one to return to Tim Powers with. Um but expiration date and earthquake weather, I don't care if they were ever written, really. Um, mm -hmm. I love Last Call. I think it's a great book, and I don't think it needed the other two books in the Fisher King trilogy, and I don't think either of them amounted to very much, really, whereas it's a great book. Uh, yeah, and I didn't uh, – I mean, Last Call, I, I remember uh, Last Call may have been the first Tim Powers book I reviewed for Locus, and I had not read it because of the Anubis Gates and, uh, and Drawing of the Dark, not to mention those – the skies discrowned and things like that. <laughs> um, those, those were before my time at Locus. So, so last call was something that Charles said, you have to read this. And I read it and I thought, this is, I loved it. I, yeah. I, 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 am, I, I am not uh, coming in second to you in terms of my admiration for last call. I didn't actually uh, read earthquake weather. Um, mm -hmm. When we got to declare, it seemed like he was doing something different, something a little bit more complicated, something more novelistic. Uh, and by the way, I loved, the, I, I, I liked his science fiction novel. Um, I liked, uh, you know, I liked I mean, uh, the dinner at Series of Palace. Yeah. Uh, pretty much, I, I like the way he writes. And one of the things I'm, I'm rediscovering, in answer to your question, yes, this is the book to return to Tim Powers if you've been away or if you thought 
the Fisher King thing got too complicated because there were three novels. Last Call, you're absolutely right, stands by itself. It doesn't need mm. uh, two other variations on it. Um, I think uh, there's a way in which a lot of his most serious beliefs are embedded in um, in uh, Last Call. his later novels. Oh, on labels. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, yes, in, in books like um, <laughs> Declare. Well, Declare is probably the, uh, the the main example of that, and it's it, it gets very complicated, and it's um, I just think that it worked. Okay, let me put it this way: uh, we should get Tim on, and we can argue about yeah, it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, I, I think it worked better as a novel than some of his earlier novels did, but his earlier novels worked way better as romances, which is essentially what he was writing then. Yeah. And this is this is a return to romance, but the characters. This is a novel about. Uh, I think all the advanced publicity is out there already, so I'm not telling it. It's a character about the Rossetti family, about Dante Gabriel Rossetti, mostly about Christina, sure. yep. um, and um, and their relationship to the same supernatural forces that haunted Shelley and Keats and Byron back in the stress of her regard, and with with Trelawney as a kind of uh, connecting figure and some and some new characters. So this is yes. his Victorian novel. In some ways. If there were any steam in it, it would be a steampunk novel because it's returning to the world of sure. William Ashton. So it's returning really kind of to the world of the Anubis Gates. But I think with – I guess what I'm saying is with a lot of stuff he's learned about writing character uh, added to it. Yes. And this so is coming out, out in March, is it? I think it's a March book, yeah. And, I, and I'm saying all this having read about half of it at this point, which I – probably shouldn't i mean the whole thing could completely fall apart at the end or it could become the most brilliant fantasy i've ever read at the end uh, you never know yes but so far i'm liking it quite a bit i'm thinking okay uh this is this has got the best of the two tim powers in it it's got the 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 the, the, the romantic fantasy stuff which is not overdone but there's a lot of subterranean london by the way is any one of the things i was thinking halfway through this is anybody ever written a fantasy novel about london that doesn't have people going underground. <laughs> I'm sure many have, but I'd have to stop and think about it for a minute. I mean, maybe Charles Williams, if you have to go back that far. But I'm thinking, un-London, you end up in the sub... I think you end up in the caverns there at some point. Yeah. Um, certainly never where. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly, uh, well, I mean... Oh, come on, say, Peter Pan, it doesn't go underground. It's sitting partly in London. You're going way back further than Charles Williams to get to that <laughs> one. But it's one off the top of my head. That counts. True, okay, you're right. <laughs> But I, t I sort of take your point, you know. Actually, what I was thinking, uh, and it joins two conversations that I've had in the last few days together while you're talking, is it's interesting how, well, interesting to me, if nobody else, how it occurs to you to think about the books that you're looking forward to. Because mm -hmm. I was aware that this book was coming out, and I was, I was looking forward to it, and then I realized it had completely slipped my mind. You know, so for example, when I was asked the other day, "What are you looking forward to?" I was thinking of a particular group of books. Uh, the same is true of Margot's book, um, Sea Brides, or the mm -hmm. Bride, uh, Sea Wives, or the Brides oh, of Rock Island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, because I said this in the review, and I will say it again. Uh, sea Hearts, which I think is a wonderful oh, title, it was the title of her novella, um, is is mysterious and so forth and so on. The, the English, apparently the British and American titles are, are, are the same. The Brides of Roll Rock Island. Uh, yes. Which I think was the original title of the book for what it's worth. I think it was, that was Margot's original title. I believe so. I, I think so. Margot will correct. Please correct. <laughs> uh, 
Um, I'm not calling that title. It was also, I think, briefly called Watered Silk, maybe, I think. Uh, that sounds familiar. Because I seem to recall Margot saying, and again, if she listens and wants to correct me, please, they're almost at the point where they're going to get different titles in every territory. Why? Why is that? <laughs> because what ha- well, what happens is, and it's happened to me with a couple of my books, is you, you, su- you submit a, a proposal, or I, I assume a completed novel, and it goes to, to the editor at the publishing house, and they go, is that really the title you want to roll with? Or in some cases, and this is what I was picking up from her, I might, might have it you know, around the wrong way. Different editors are going, this title isn't going to work in our, our market. It's not going to place it's work, the book where we need it to be. What else do you have? And they throw it back. And I think titles to books semi-regularly change. And you know, particularly if the author isn't willing to say, no, my book is going to be called Spangly you know, mar- you know, Spiders from the Outer Reaches of the New Hebrides, uh, rather right. than, you know, sort of uprising. Uh you know, you end up having to kind of live with it. So I think Margot was being asked politely, and and and, and she's a very accommodating and nice lady. Uh, would she please come up with a local market kind of a title? Now they've obviously worked it out between the British and Australian markets to stick with um, the title that that, that we like in, in Sea Watch, but uh, not with in the U.S. market where they're going with Brides of Royal Rock Island, which is, as I say, I'm pretty sure was the original title. But I can't say that I love as much. I will say uh, this, and if Margot's listening, she can beat me up. Uh, <laughs> I don't like that title. I mean, that, 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 that's a title that should star <laughs> Olivia Newton-John. That's a, <laughs> you uh, said that. I'm not sure I'm convinced that's true. <laughs> well, whatever. Uh, but for one thing, you've got to, you, you basically have um, uh, protect. It, it, it's not a, it's not necessarily a book for girls, and I think *The Brides of Roll Rock Island* tells American and British audiences that it is. I think it's a book that's. It, I can understand the the reasons for wanting to market it as a young adult book, uh, but by and large, a lot of the most. In, it, it's one of those things where you don't want to publish a book that's going to say boys don't read this book. No, well, no, you don't. You don't. Um, and it's well, simple, but, you don't yeah. a book that says to girls don't read this book either. No, well, you know what? Well, it would actually. That's a okay. Since we're wandering everywhere, yes and no, Gary. I'm going to say this. Um, you don't. You don't really want a no. What you want is a book, a, a, a title, and a cover that honestly reflect the book you've got. That's what you want. Yes, that's so, true. So that when you put it out there, it can find its audience and you can promote it to its audience. I think. Now, there are books that are better suited to particular audiences. That doesn't mean that only that audience should get them or that any further audience should be denied them. But I think, you know, there's a certain audience for 101 Great Ways to Repair Your Camaro. And it's people who own Camaros, whoever they might be, and whatever that Camaro-owning demographic is. And similarly, you know, there's a demographic for the chopping things up with a big sword action adventure story or whatever and sometimes that does mean you're going for though i wouldn't you know identify them uh a gender-based market sometimes or some other factors so yeah it's it goes around yeah i i I agree to some extent i was having a good uh a conversation with a a friend of mine last night as a matter of fact um who's we were talking about her child stacy haynes who's I've, i've talked to you about before and she, when she was a kid, refused to read Nancy Drew because she couldn't stand this horrible picture of a girl in a skirt. Yeah. And she read the Hardy Boys mysteries. 
Yeah. And I'm guessing there were a lot of women of, of, of this age, I guess I guess they're all still around, who thought Hardy Boys mysteries were probably cooler than Nancy Drew. Yeah. And the thing that struck me as odd was I remember starting with the Hardy Boys mysteries and moving over to Nancy Drew, and I thought Nancy Drew were better mysteries, actually. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, yeah. But I, my, my point is, I guess you're right, that people, readers who know what they want are not going to be uh, necessarily controlled by a title. No, 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 no. Um, I don't know that, I mean, you might be more attracted. I mean, I think Sea Hearts is a nicer, see, I finally got it right. Sea Hearts is a nicer and perhaps more poetic and mellifluous title. Brides of Royal Rock Island is a kind of okay mechanically kind of title. But then mm-hmm. it'll also depend, first, for, okay, first of all, anybody who read in like Tender Morsels is going to buy it, whether you call it the Brides of Royal Rock Island or 101 Great Hamburger Recipes, you know. They're, well, that's when you become a name. That's when you become a name. I mean, yeah, there are names, and you and I can name them, and probably a lot of the same names. Margot Lanigan. Yeah, I don't care what the title is. If I see Margot Lanigan on the book, I'm going to want to read it. Mm-hmm. I see Kelly Link on a book, I'm going to read it. I see, mm-hmm. you know, Jeff Ford. There's a whole list of people like that. But I'm talking about somebody who maybe maybe doesn't know Margot's work. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, here's another example. As long as we're on the issue of titles, of what I think is a bad title in terms of finding a new audience. Which was one of my favorite books last year was Johanna Sinasalo's Bird Brain. Yep. You look at that title and you have no idea whatsoever as to what that book is going to be about. And in fact, if you want to read a, a book about what I comes to mind as somebody who's sort of airheaded, it sounds like a Jerry Lewis comedy, and then you get this really uh, a sort of metaphysical version of Heart of Darkness, which may or may not be a fantasy novel, but is brilliantly done. It was one of the best novels of last year. I think that Bird Brain is not going to drive people to that novel. Probably not. I mean, if you had read Troll, then mm. you would pick up because it's Johannes Sinasalo. But I think you're right. I don't think that the title would direct people to it, in my opinion. But this is something which I think our friend, it might have been Neil Harrison who was touching on this, and he's kind of got a point. When we talk about something attracting us or not attracting us, appearing commercial, appearing to be in the frame of something or not, you know, mm-hmm. what are the subtexts that we're picking up that's making us feel this way? Why is it that when a certain book comes along, it gets us excited? Or even we look at it and the package makes us interested, and others, we look at it and go, eh, you know, for me... A Johann, that you know, Bird Brain was a book that I'd pick up in spite of its cover, in spite of its title, in spite of its its packet, its packaging and description. Mm-hmm. And that's an awful lot of in spite of when there are all those other books that there I want to read. In spite of, but my point is, what about the people who have never read Troll, who have never read any of the short fiction? Well, the, pe- the people who have never heard of Johanna Senesala are going to see a novel called Bird Brain and think probably that it's vaguely comic or screwball comedy in some way. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, but I, I don't know. Well, no, the the, I, pack, the packaging I, I, argued against that. I seem to recall, wasn't it a, like a sunsetty kind of picture and everything on the cover of that book? Actually, I, I've never seen the cover of that book <laughs> because, I, as you know, I only ever get to look at arcs or e copies. You, you speaking back. Well, this is just the strangest, most rambling podcast we've done. Um, if you cast back to what you were saying earlier about collecting books and everything, and surely this is the kind of book you'd collect. Oh yeah, this is the kind of thing I would want to have. But, but the point is, you and I and people and, and the people who are probably listening to us for that matter are fairly knowledgeable about the writers in the field, and we want to know what we, um, what, what we'll buy a book on the basis of an author. Yeah. Um, and 
And there are novels where you don't necessarily know much about the author that are kind of classic, intriguing titles. And I think we get away from that when we get into metaphorical titles, we get into titles that are subtle or so forth and so on. I mean, I I go back to when I was a kid and picking up books like Childhood's End and Stranger in a Strange Land, they kind of told you what was going to happen in the book. (laughs) Well, they did. Well, little. Well, no, the original uh, well, the title might have, but the cover certainly didn't for Stranger in a Strange Land. And by the way, just for what it's worth... The cover of Bird Brain basically shows clouds at a sunset and a bird flying. So it could be a nature novel. It could be, exactly. And I note as well, talking about packaging and titling, actually, and Cinecilo is a fantastic example because I'd forgotten about Mm -hmm. this or it slipped my mind. Her previous book was called Troll in One Market and Never Before Sunrise in Another One. That's true. And Troll, to me, is a terrible title. That evokes little little kid toys with fluffy hair, right? Well, this is the thing. I suspect Troll means something a little bit different in Finland than it does to us. I, uh, I, I guess. There, 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 there's, there, there's a, there's a, I think it's a, I don't know if it's, I think it's a Norwegian film, but it may be a Finnish film, called Troll, which is really pretty good. It's yeah. one of these films that deals with a pseudo-documentary style and it involves, it's called Troll Hunter, I'm sorry. Yep. Uh, and Troll Hunter is a fine film. I liked it quite a bit. And I thought, okay, I the only reason I watched this film was because I'd realized that this had to do with... It was a Scandinavian film that dealt with a kind of um, folklore that meant something different to them than it does to us, those of yeah. us who get trolls through short stories and, 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 and Grimm's fairy tales and so forth mm-hmm. and so on. Uh, so... I, I think that does become an issue with writers who are not widely familiar to a, to a broad audience. Um, okay. I mean, Tim, Tim Powers has a wide readership, but if Tim Powers didn't have a wide readership, my theory is that a title like Hide Me Among the Graves is really evocative. Okay. I, I think it's a good title. I think Tim. I think Tim generally does good titles, except for The Sky's Discrowned. <laughs> which is one of the worst titles I know. <laughs> Didn't he retitle that one, though? I think did, he did reissue it. Uh, it was a laser book originally, I believe. Yes. And I think it did retitle and reissued. Absolutely. <laughs> but, so, oh, God. What was he thinking back then? Uh, but anyway, Sorry, okay. Uh, we, we are now officially semi-rambling, and we're still only halfway through this podcast, Gary. We need to, I have, we need to tighten up. I can change the topic entirely. Okay, do that because if I was going, to, if I was okay, editing this okay, podcast, I'd cut this bit out. So. Was, um, well, here were here are two thoughts that these are random thoughts. We should have a section of the podcast called Random Thoughts. Welcome to the section of this podcast that section, called Random Thoughts. That, that section should. Th- I was going to say that section should begin at the beginning of the podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah. Three things I was reading lately. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is I was reading, and they may be connected in some way. Mm-hmm. I was reading Charles Strauss's interview in the current issue of Locus Online, which came out um, today, as a matter of, yesterday, yes. I guess, I, December first. And, and Charlie Strauss is a great interviewer because, as Liza mentions, he's a great talker, yep. and he thinks through things. And he was talking about how much he'd been influenced by the mundane SF movement. Oh yeah, and. Uh, and, and and he's doing he's doing this novel with Corey called The Rapture of the Nerds and so forth and so on. And I thought, okay, the mundane SF movement, this connects with another thing I'm doing. I'm trying to write an essay on science fiction movements for a project. And I thought, 
Okay, mundane SF never really took off as a movement. I don't think. No. I think it's uh, it, 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 it's not something that I would spend a lot of time talking about in my essay on movements. But then I started thinking about a couple of books I've been reading recently, and uh, that are uh, actually they're both reviewed in the current locus: the Al Reynolds novel *Blue Remembered Earth* and the Paul McCauley novel *In the Mouth of the Whale*. Mm-hmm. And these are not mundane SF, but they're not entirely new space opera ever. Either. So yep. what I'm thinking is, is what, is what Jeff Ryman and his students were doing with that, was trying to create a movement which they must have known nobody was going to climb on board that ship for very long, but what they did was create a kind of dialectic in which you had the new space opera going on over here mm-hmm. with vast galactic empires and so forth, and mundane SF saying, well, we don't know how to do that, so we shouldn't write about it, and instead you've got a middle ground now, which is solar system science fiction. Science fiction which isn't quite as broad-based and cosmic and galactic as as, as, as the classic uh, 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 new space opera, space opera renaissance stuff, uh, but which is, is not quite um, mundane SF either. In other words, the, I, the assumption which I'm seeing between these Macaulay and Reynolds novels and a few stories I've seen in addition is that Solar system fiction seems to be a kind of compromise between mundane SF and new space opera. How does that sound? It doesn't sound bad. I mean, the random thoughts that wandered through my head while you were saying that, first of all, were what they're writing now, what what Al and what Paul have written, strike me very much as Hmm. in step with what was once referred to as radical hard SF by the Interzone Editorial Collective back in the early 80s. And I suspect that has a common root with new space opera um, or it, it grew out of that. So I can mm. see there's a resonance. And I also think, you know, we live in this time where it's hard to see us get, you know, with this, what we know of science, with what we know of current economics and, and everything else. It's kind of hard to see us doing a lot of interstellar travel in, as a species in the, in the coming centuries. Who knows what might happen? Uh, however, in some sense, getting out to these planets, which we've been visiting with probes and whatever else over the last few decades, uh, it, it, it seems a much more doable thing, so it's an achievable thing. So I can understand how, and I think, yes, there's, there's some truth to what you're saying, that the more mundane version of space opera is achievable space opera, if you like, and that's what we're getting. We're, we're in the era of achievable space opera. You know, you can go out to, you can, you can populate the solar system in some way, and it's believable because the uh, the distances are, are are just about human manageable. You get it in twenty three twelve as well, Stan's book. Mm. You know, uh, you can imagine someone spending months getting from one planet to another. You can, or that they could actually increase the speed of space travel reasonably to the point where you could get from Earth to Mars in a few months, maybe rather than two or three years, or that two or three years could be a human manageable project rather than centuries. Well, that's exactly the well, that's exactly the point I'm trying to make. Thank you, and it's a point that uh, that I think uh, Neil Stevenson is making with his achievable technology hieroglyph project. Uh, and it's 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 a point that I, I I just while you were talking looked up uh, Charlie's interview, and what he said, and it resonates exactly with what you said is um, that uh, what mundane SF is really about. I'm quoting Charles Strauss now is pointing out that if we're trying to write SF that extrapolates believably about the future, we've gotten lazy. We've gotten into the habit of using stock tropes from our central supplies department, faster than light travel, 
time travel, AI, alien contact, which are all to greater ex a greater or lesser extent plausible, but which may not ever actually exist. We, it goes on to say, these are these are science fictional concepts, but we don't know how to get from here to there. Yeah. And when you talk about colonizing uh, the moons of Jupiter, and Stan Robinson's new novel is very much a solar system novel. That's the third one we could add to the list. Um, there's that's at the edge of imagining what we might do. And I think the distinction here is um, uh, the, the, the continuum here with yeah. mundane, mundane SF at one end and, and, and new space opera at the other end is the difference between what we can do and what we are likely to do. Yeah. What we will do. Yes. Uh, and that it strikes me as being uh, fairly interesting. Uh, now, the interesting thing about Paul McCauley's novel is that he does – uh, move beyond the solar system in mm -hmm. that one. Yeah. But he does it in a very limited way, and there's a sense in which uh, there are two ways of reading Paul McCauley's novel. One is that he's breaking faith with the Quiet War uh, series, uh, in that he's now moved us over to Fomalhaut. Yeah. Uh, the other is that he's simply taking us stage by stage through the kind of um, what Wolheim called the consensus cosmogony of science fiction moving out. I, I'm not sure that people believe in that cosmogony anymore. I'm not sh sure that people really uh, believe that uh, interstellar science fiction is that much different from uh, from fantasy. Voyager killed the Gernsback continuum. Yeah, there you go. You know, I mean, surely the outcome of, like of of science of voy of the, what we learned from the Voyager probes and other things has made that whole tidy kind of 1940s, 50s, growing out of scientific fiction kind of future seem exactly like fantasy. And in fact, I, yeah. fi I find when I encounter it, that's my reaction. The most obvious example, and I've cited it before, uh, even though I enjoyed the book, when I read uh, John Scalzi's Old Man's War, right, mm. a few years ago, I found it a completely jarring experience on one level. And the thing was, I couldn't and don't believe in a universe where you leave your planet and you find yourself on a space station and there's an interstellar marketplace of hundreds of different species interacting in a grand republic-y kind of a thing. Yeah. It seems completely... It's a fantasy. It's a far future fantasy. Well, and, and, and to some extent, you can do this using hard science fiction rationales to get there. I mean, I think of stories uh, like Greg Egan's Oceanic, which I, is a terrific story. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge amount of just flat-out equations behind that story. But the reading experience is almost reading a fantasy. Yeah. Uh, you don't really – in my case, I can't really understand all the extrapolations that, that, that Egan went through to get that. But, um, but once the story starts, it's a fantasy world. It's a fantasy world with a couple of um, uh, extrapolative underpinnings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, which, which goes back to the other thing I was thinking about in terms of random thoughts, which is that um, when science fiction oh, – the, the, this came about because I was writing an essay for a magazine, which is my university's alumni magazine, and I'm sure you've done the same thing. You're writing an essay about science fiction and about your relationship to science fiction for people who think Star Wars, Star Trek, uh, you know, and so you end up saying again and again, 
that science fiction is not good about predicting the future. That's a cle it's it's it's, a, it's always a surprise to non-science fiction readers, and it's become a cliche to those of us who've been in the field for a long time. Yeah. And I was, for various reasons, rereading *The Space Merchants*, which is now 60 years old. Yeah, almost. I just had a new edition. Um. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Good. Excellent. And I was thinking, uh, there's a lot of stuff in there which is completely off base in terms of the technology, but completely right on in terms of human behavior. Mm -hmm. So here's my new theory, uh, which is about six hours old at this point. <laughs> science fiction is really bad when it comes to predicting technology, when it comes to developing um, future technologies that actually resemble the technologies that we live with, because we are now in a place living you know, in 2011 where we can look at predictions of things that were supposed to happen in the 1990s and, say, and laugh at them. Mm -hmm. they, just, they just didn't happen. But what I, what I was seeing in the space merchants was even though they got the technology wrong, they got human behavior right. In other words, there is, for example, here's one example. Uh, there's a character in the space merchants who's going off on a hike somewhere in a glacier in Canada. And they're worried he's going to get lost. But what he has is a radio direction finding system with him which was a system that was developed uh, during World War II for mm -hmm. simply locating the source. Well, effectively, what that is, is an imagining of people not wanting to get lost and wanting to have a way of avoiding getting lost. Mm -hmm. What he did in projecting that, what he or she, he or he or he, uh, we don't know whether Fred or Cyril came up with this, they came up with the idea that there's going to come a time when people want a technology that keeps them from getting lost. Yes. Now, they, did, they, came, they came nowhere close to imagining a GPS system. Yeah. What they did was they said, we'll take this World War II technology, radio direction finding, and effectively use it as a GPS system. Yes. So in terms of individual behavior, in terms of what people want, they got it right. In terms of how that's achieved technologically, they got it wrong. Another example, which mm -hmm. occurred to me when I thought of this, was the one classic example which has been reprinted in Wired magazine and everywhere uh, that is used as the only science fictional prediction of the internet was Murray Leinster's 1946 story of Logic Dame Joe. Mm -hmm. uh, and I thought, okay, uh, you read that today and it, you, you, if, if, you, if you read it with enough wiggle room, you can say, okay, this is, he's predicting the internet. What he was predicting was a desire that people could use their homes as an information center. Yeah, that 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 behavior turned out to be real. The fact that he used uh, wired telephone technology to do that, his technology is laughable. But I mean, basically, in Murray Leinster's story, you're talking about a worldwide party line, which is something we used to have in the states, where you'd have several people on your telephone line. Yeah. Um, but still, the point that he got the technology wrong isn't the point. The point that he recognized that people would want to be able to do this sort of thing was absolutely right. Yes. So my, my, new, my new theory is basically that science fiction is really bad at extrapolating technology and pretty good at extrapolating behavior and desire. I think that's true. I think that's a good, a good theory. I think we should keep it for another 48 hours and see how it grows. But yeah, no, that, that sounds robust to me. I th but then it's hardly surprising in a way. I mean, all, all you're saying is that as writers of fiction, of, of creators of literature, that science fiction writers are able to extrapolate human needs from, or desi you know, desires from the mm -hmm. current day into the future. Well, 
that strikes me as a basic literary skill. It is to some extent, but it's a little bit different with science fiction because you, you're trying to anticipate people's needs in a way that um, um, that mundane, realistic writers don't. I mean, they're simply recognizing existing needs. The idea that needs will change, the idea that, for example, yeah. your your home will become a hub of information <laughs> is something I don't think people in the 19th century would have thought much of. Uh, no. And that, another way of looking at this, and I, I'm, I'm probably not going to think of any examples. This is the fun of a podcast. You don't have any time to think. Think of the number of science fictional ideas that were just hand-waving when they were initiated and decades later became pl plausible. Sure, I can think of a few of them. Uh, where, yeah, I mean, you, know, you know, where there's, you know, well, as you say, hand-wavium, you know, is, is dropped in and then science evolves. Yeah, certainly. Well, one example that does come to mind is, is Asimov's positronic robots. Mm -hmm. Now, I've seen interviews with Asimov, who I only met once and I never got a chance to ask him about this. But I'm pretty sure that what he said in the interviews was he had no idea what a positronic brain was. He was making that up as he went along. <laughs> Positron theory had come along, and he thought, well, maybe something will happen that will generate some connection between positrons and artificial intelligence. What he was really talking about was artificial intelligence. Yes. And that turned out to be a realistic uh, need on people's parts, you know. We don't have, and, and, and we're never going to have the robots. And by the way, some of our listeners are going to call us to account for our misstatements about robots. Uh -huh. But artificial intelligence, um, yeah, I mean, we've got Siri on the iPhone 4S now. The other thing I'd say about the statement about, or the, you know, the analysis of science fiction writers getting it right or getting it wrong, mm. tell me, since Hugo Gernsback published the first issue of science fiction, how many short stories and no novels identifiable science fiction would you estimate were published in the English language? How many? Yeah. Have a guess. I'll just, just dream a figure up. I'll, I'll go along with it. It doesn't Ten, matter. 10,000. Oh, get out of town. I'm not going to go along with that. That's nonsense. If there's fewer than a quarter of a million stories, I'd be surprised. There must be 10,000. I mean, Locus uh, keeps track of oh, you're three right. and a half thousand, three and a half thousand is, short stories a year. Yeah, there's got to be. Okay, let's go. Let's a million. Go. Do you have Do you have a figure in mind? I, I would put it in the seven figures, certainly. In the millions. Yeah. If you counted every single story or novel published in the English language identifiable as science fiction, sin, or, that, or that could be interpreted as science fiction, since the first issue of science fiction was published. I reckon since, seven figures since 19, what is it, 23 or something? You want to say 1926, you want to say American stories. Okay. American amazing stories. Yeah. That's the first time we had a name for the genre. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, I mean, I've, 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 been, I've been dealing with this for a long time. If you want to deal with how many things you could consider science fiction going back for the last 300 years, you get in serious problems. Yeah, yeah. But let's but, say, okay, only going through the period since science fiction had a name. Yeah, yeah, and that basically is 1926. Okay, um, so 1926 to, to 2011. I'm telling, I'm saying, I reckon seven figures. Published. Published. For some value um, of published, yeah. Who could we ask to answer this question? Because Bill Contento. Bill Contento would probably be able to do it, and Mike Ashley would be able to figure out how many stories were published in magazines during that. Uh, less than a hundred year period. Yeah. I think Locus is misleading because 
you know, Locus in the last several years has been dealing with a huge number of short story venues. Um, but one of the things I was looking at in the 60s, in the 50s, for example, was, uh, you know, at the end of the pulp era, you're dealing with 20, maybe one up to 40 science fiction magazines, and then between the various distributor collapses and and things, by the by 1960, there were six science fiction magazines. Okay. J- just as a quick thing, I'm going to interrupt you. I'm looking online at the Index of Science Fiction Anthologies and Collections Combined Edition, copyright 2008, William G. Contento, covering uh-huh. uh, pretty much the period we're talking about. Now, they identify up until 1984, 38,000 stories by 3,880 different writers. Right? Uh-huh. 19, now, what was it? Okay, for, go ahead. Basically, up until 1984. Right. Now, allowing all the stuff they never saw, and all the stuff that they never put in, and this is only short stories, not books, uh, and right. it, primarily they're restricted to the, the U.S. and uh, the U.K. when they interpret this, I think, roughly. I, I, I think I'm going to stand by my, my, my seven-figure thing. Not the least things, since I reckon the 1985 to 2011 thing would beat that 38,000 into the ground. I think you're right. I think you're right about that. I think you're... Looking my, at least my, twice that figure. My point is, and this is what I'm really getting to with the whole issue of prediction, blind luck would get you there, Gary. Well, the question about blind luck is somebody has to find those stories. Sure. There may very well have been a story buried in astonishing stories in 1941 that absolutely hit on the conversation we're having now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, if nobody knows about it. I mean, the thing about the, the Murray Leinster story, it was around for decades, and nobody thought it had no impact, as far as I can tell, in 1946 at all. But starting in the 1990s, people somebody stumbled across the story, probably after the Nesta Press edition of Leinster came out. Mm-hmm. So you're absolutely right. Uh, the, the, the simple ra- figure of random means you're going to get some technological behaviors right. Yep. Uh, my point is that science fiction, I think, almost systematically has managed to get... Um, Behaviors right. Yes. Okay. Yeah, well, fair enough. I mean, the, the 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 basic premise of the space merchants for 1952 Galaxy Serial is pretty impressive. The idea that advertising agencies would control our perception of media. It's not just that they have uh, a GPS in it. It's not just that they they have they have tobacco companies in 1952. I should say tobacco companies imagined in 1952 deliberately adding addictive components to cigarettes and yep. trying to hurt children on cigarettes. Um, and I'm sure that that, and, and I'm, I'm suspecting that was Cornbluth because he was more cynical than Fred was. Mm-hmm. Um, that was like thinking, okay, uh, corporations will do anything to sell products. And I think at mm-hmm. the time, people would have thought that's really cynical. And it still seems really cynical, except now we know that they did it. <laughs> yes, it's that special uh, kind of cynical that you have to describe as absolutely, completely believable. Mm-hmm. So. And are people writing fictions like that today? I mean, again, the name, uh, the, the, one, the one writer who's a contemporary writer who's been compared to Poland Cornbluth, of course, is Paolo Bacigalupi, um, whose Pump Six is a no, classic. No, 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 get out of town. He's not, there's none of the same satire involved. Well, there's not... Well, there is, to some extent. I'm not thinking of short fiction. I'm looking at stories like Pump Six. See, see, I'd be happier to give you Jim Morrow than I would be to give you Paolo Bacigalupi. Okay, Jim Morrow. Uh, but they're both regarded by many readers as mm-hmm. bleak, cynical writers. And that part of, part of you wants to think, well, 
they're bleak and cynical in one sense, and in another sense, they're following a logical train of thought in terms of human behavior, yeah, and uh, a way that's difficult to argue with. I guess. Well, I can see that. Uh, you know, on the one hand, you've got you've got that kind of a future, which doesn't lead anywhere good, and on the other hand, you have uh, the singularity future, which is maybe possible. But again, I go back to Charlie Strauss's interview on the current locus. Even he's saying is that you know, you know, the singularity thing was something I made up for one series of stories, <laughs> and and the Vengean singularity uh, doesn't really have to do with human behavior; it has to do with AI behavior. Um, so we don't really know if we're talking about a, a a a likely future in terms of what humans are likely to do. I think that's true. I'm and not going to. <laughs> Do you know where this is going? I don't know where this is going at all. But 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 um, I, there was one thing I was going to re- reiterate. It's a complete you know, sort of you know, sort of abrupt change, but it co- comes back to our original thing we were going to we talk do about, um, and it touches on something else I said elsewhere, but it doesn't really matter. We were going to talk about briefly about audiobooks, which are part of oh, the, yeah. the change in our field. You know, there's a range of the rise of digital books, and now it seems. Not all of a sudden, but certainly in the last year or two, and with a few other things, that audiobooks are becoming much more prevalent and available, and all that kind of thing. Well, go ahead. And I'm I'm torn about audiobooks. I really am torn. I want to love audiobooks, um, but I have a couple of issues with them, and I'm not sure that I can get past them. The, one of them is just the structure of my own day-to-day life, in the fact that I don't have time to read old books and almost all of the audio books become available in the world sometime after the, pr- the print edition yeah. and that's just not practical for me. Then there's the fact that it's a physically passive thing to do so, so it's easy for me to become distracted and I, you know, not because the, the, the telling isn't good but basically because I'm out and about I'm doing something and I get distracted. And then it's like, oh, I missed a, a bit of the story and I have to go back. doesn't happen when you have the book in front of you in the same way. Um, the other two issues, and I think they're relevant, are, first of all, I get put off by the declared length of a thing. You know, mm-hmm. I think the example I've been giving is uh, Stephen King's 112263, which last time I cl- looked at, I think clocks in as something like a, what is it? A thirty? It's a thirty-one hour reading. Thirty-one hours or thirty-eight hours, something like that. Yeah. And that daunts me. The fact that I know that it's going to be thirty-one hours, and it, it, it doesn't allow for the fact that maybe, just maybe, I could read more quickly than that. Um, and finally, the voice of the narrator that you get, and this is much the same issue you get with an with a film adaptation, I guess. Mm-hmm. But. Um, the voice of the narrator you get is different from the one you get if you read it yourself. And it kind of imprints on the story. And sometimes maybe in a good way. I've been uh, listening to the voice of Ellen Kushner read her novel Swords Point through the Neil Gaiman's Presents program. And she's fantastic. She's really good. And obviously... Su- Hello. Sorry about that. There we were I don't know what happened books. there. Oh, well, actually, I do know what happened. I sit here at ah. my desk. Yeah. And I gesticulate mm. because that's the, when I'm talking. It's that whole hand thing, right? You wave your hands when you're talking. Oh, okay. And I knocked out the headphone cable that I use. <laughs> and Skype isn't smart enough to pick it up when I plug it back in. 
So I was hearing you all. I was hearing you all during that. But I couldn't hear you. Ah, okay. And so well, I. Well, you finished. Well, okay. So. Anyway, I was saying Ellen's great, uh, for, you know, for the voice of Swords Point. However, you know, I've come across some. I mean, I had once years ago. I got a, a cassette recording of um, Stephen King reading the, the Dark Tower of the Gunslinger, the first book. Mm-hmm. It was awful. I mean, it was painful. Um, it was this. Oh, it was just oh, put me off the series for a long, long time. And I've also had an experience recently with Philip Reeves' book, um, Fever Crumb. I, mm. He did a very just excellent reading of that book, and it's a terrific young adult science fiction novel. If mm. people out there have not read the book, I strongly, strongly recommend it. And I immediately went and downloaded the uh, – or, in fact, bought from Audible. I bought the, the second book in that set, A Web of Air. But it's narrated by Jenny Agutter, I think it is. And she's a terrific mm-hmm. actress, and I'm, I'm sure will be a wonderful reader. But it just completely changed the tone of those the, 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 the series. Well, that's one of the issues I have. And uh, the, the main issue, obviously, is the time issue. Uh, and the, mm. I, I know people who do, who are much better than I am and much more disciplined at, at exercising. That audiobooks, I understand, are terrific for running, if you're a runner. And we've had our friend Paul Cornell talk about this. And we hope we'll get him to talk about it. Um, and I've talked to other friends about it. If, 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 you, if you drive long periods of time, it's great. So I don't have that kind of time, and I tend to, as, as you do, have need to have the books in hand and be writing about them before the audiobook comes out. That said, uh, there was one audiobook I listened to a good chunk of that changed my reading of the book in a good way, and that was uh, Lenny Henry, who's a British comedian, reading yep. Neil Gaiman's Anansi Boys. Yes, and I thought, okay, he has a voice of that book that I couldn't recreate. I don't quite get what, uh, what, what in America we would call an African-American English accent. Um, and he, he nailed the book in a way that I thought was just really surprising and opened up my reading of the book in a way that I hadn't had before. Now, other audiobooks I've tried have been oddball things. Sure. I listened to a good chunk of Asimov's The Gods Themselves. Yeah. And... And the sense I had in, in listening to I have no idea who the actor was reading The Gods Themselves. This was many years ago. Yeah. Uh, the sense I had was the sense that every academic knows. When you go to a conference and you listen to somebody reading an academic paper and they're droning on, and what you want to do is go up to the desk and grab the paper from them and read it. <laughs> because you can do it in half the time. And it'll be more interesting with your imagined voice than with their real voice. <laughs> well, there's that. I would say, just a quick, quick, quick interjection. I have heard Neil Gaiman say that the prefer his author author preferred text for Nancy Boys is the Lenny Henry reading uh, reading of the book. The Lenny Henry reading is amazing. It's one of the best. I mean, it is the best audiobook I've heard. Yes, and I'll also say the reason that I never, and I mean literally never, go to. Um, book you know, readings at conventions isn't that I don't necessarily have the time. It's that I once went to a reading at a convention here in Perth, uh, and I will name names, where uh, CJ Cherry read a Heroes in Hell story she'd written. This is back in about 1986, I think. Mm-hmm. And it was terrible. It was just – it was a flat drone, and it put mm-hmm. me off forever. It's like I, I couldn't bear being bored that way again. There was no polite way to leave. It was, ah, sure, just awful. And she's, I, I love her I'll, work. So, you know. I, yeah, I, I, and the same thing. And there are writers I like who I won't be 
as rude as you are to name, who I will not go to the readings because, especially if they're friends of mine, the last thing you want to do is fall asleep in your friend's reading. Oh, yeah. And I've done that. And the uh, lights are up, and they can see your reaction to their, their reading. They can see you, and they know you're there, and so forth. So, now, that being said, uh, there are certain writers whose voice changes the story. Yes. I will, uh, if, if I get a chance to listen to Andy Duncan read one of his stories, I will jump at it. Yeah. Because Andy will read that story in the accent it's written in. Yes. In the voice it's written in. Yes. Um, there are other... Uh, uh, Peter Straub's a good reader. Jeff Ford's a good reader. The best reader, I think the best reader I ever had, which will not make too many living people feel bad, was Roger Zelazny, mm -hmm. uh, who was just... Uh, he, he loved the chance of being able to act out his stories, and you could see how much he cherished this. Yeah. And he was loud and boisterous and all over the map, and uh, and, and you began to think, well, I thought he, I heard him read uh, a couple of short stories and part of one of the, actually one of the later uh, uh, novels in in, in in the series. What's the series I'm thinking of? The Amber. Uh, Amber Amber series. It wasn't even a very good novel, but hearing him read it. I thought, this is terrific. This is great stuff. And actually, that was one of the few experiences where I went back and read the novel and thought, this isn't nearly as good as that reading. <laughs> ah, it's funny. And I mean, the, the one example which changed for me, and I've quoted it before when it comes to readings, was uh, Garrison Keillor. Uh-huh. I'd never heard The Prairie Home Companion, but I picked up uh -huh. a copy of Lake Wobegon Days, and I thought it was just not funny at all. And then I heard, actually, I forget why, I actually went out and I traced, checked down a copy of The Prairie Home Companion, one of the, the episodes, listened to it, and then I picked up the book and read it with his accent in mind, and it was hilarious. Exactly. That's the kind of thing that happens to me with Andy Duncan. Yeah. Uh, if, you've, if you've heard Andy's voice, and if there's anybody who should be doing audiobooks, it's Andy, mm. and everything you read by Andy after that sounds like that. It does. I cannot read an Andy Duncan story without hearing Andy's voice. <laughs> No, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. I would be mu much the same. And I mean, uh, the other part, I mean, there are a couple of, I mean, there are any number of writers actually in the field, not any number, there's a handful, who are known for being great readers. Uh, the other ones that come mm -hmm. to mind are Howard Waldrop, who's uh -huh. also renowned for being terrific. Uh, Harlan Ellison is, is, yes, is, is known for being very, very good. Um, and I note that he's got some new book projects out, which are quite interesting. Um and also, I mean, Neil has has a great reputation as a reader. Uh, our, our friend Ellen Clay just does, you know. So yes, she does. So, so you know, they they are around, but they're it, it it's a a crapshoot, and you do risk being deeply. Bored. I think, and Ellen Ellen can correct us on this. I think she's done workshops for writers on how to give readings, uh, because there is a fair amount of acting and, in her case, improv comedy and various things that go on. Yep. You read the audience. And I've had uh, I, I've heard any number of people. Well, one of the things that happens at a conference I go to regularly is uh, the International Conference on the Fantastic, which programs three three readers on one session. Yeah. They get like twenty minutes each, and it can be painful. Yeah. Uh, to go to one of these sessions and listen to somebody. I'm thinking of uh, a session I went to with Jane Yolen, who's another very good reader, and there was a young author who had won our Crawford Award that year reading right after Jane Yolen, and it was painful. Yeah. I mean, it really was, because he had not thought through this. He was, in, in, in his uh, defense, he was utterly terrified. He was somebody who'd published his first novel and was on a reading program following Jane Yolen. I wouldn't want to do that. No. Uh, so, so, so there is that sense that, you know, you think you ought to 
spend some time talking about delivery or thinking about delivery before you decide you're going to read your uh, your fictional. And as I say, the the principle is not much different from uh, from what you hear in academic papers. No. Where I know people, and I, I I know from personal experience, people who are dynamic, exciting teachers in the classroom, and they get up to read something they've read to their peers, and it becomes deadly. Yeah. It becomes embarrassing. But I mean, to some degree, what you're talking about is there's a need to prepare for anything. I mean, this is like you know my then nine-year-old daughter walking out out of a convention panel I did in Melbourne last year and saying to me, you know, Dad, you could have prepared. Well, yeah, okay. So to some degree, you know, yeah, we have to allow that's what we're really talking about as well when it comes to um, reading and doing readings and everything else. It's like, you know, Dad, you could have prepared. So anyway, well, on she that, got, that she got a point. She does. But you don't want to over-prepare. You don't want to, you don't want to come across as arch and rehearsed um, either. The, 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 the thing about a reading... Uh, whether it's an audio reading that's recorded or whether it's something you're listening to at a convention, is that you want it to appear spontaneous. You want it to give you something that you couldn't get by grabbing the text and reading it yourself. Yeah, I think that's true. And that's too rare. Yes. Gary? We're done? I think we're done. Uh, oh. we're, we're, I mean, we didn't get to the fact that there's, there's four new Harlan Ellison books just been released through CafePress.com, possibly through something called Harlan Ellison Books, I think. I think that's true. Uh, where you can buy trade paperbacks of his screenplays and some of his stories and essays, uh, which we and should maybe touch on. I mean, it, it appears to be an example of a major writer in our field engaging in what we might call self-publishing. Uh, uh, though that, I'm not mm. sure that actually how that plays in the modern era if we think about it the same way. Um. So that's something we might talk about in future, but probably well, Harlan, not next week. I'm sorry, yeah? Yeah, we can talk about it next week because Harlan, I talked to Harlan a couple of weeks ago, and he's enthusiastic about this, but he's always had a thriving business and recordings of himself because Harlan is uh, whatever stories or anecdotes or folklore people have about Harlan, he's a very entertaining person to listen to. Yeah, yeah. Yes, he is, without a doubt. And I think, and it may just be my personal history and everything else. All, all of our observations tend to be that on this this podcast. But it's nice to see anything which drags our attention back to what he's done on paper, which is his absolute, yeah, you know, the, the essence of his great uh, achievement and career. But on that cheery note, I think we're going to have a chat with Paul Cornell next week. Hi, Paul. You're probably on the you know, on the treadmill even as we speak. And Paul can tell us what it's like to listen to things because he knows how to listen. Paul's a good listener. Good for Paul. I wonder if he'll be on the treadmill when we talk to him. That would be like really – wouldn't that be great? That would really sort of like um, link up really neatly, I think. So that would be great. Um, Okay. And then it'll be the rundown to Christmas because, I mean, we'll be talking to Paul on the 10th, I think. So that's what, two Mm -hmm. weeks before Christmas. Uh, We'll do some kind of, you know, sort of hopefully not – keep going on and on about year, the year in review sort of podcast the week after that. And then we're going to do a Boxing Day podcast. So we're barreling along. Um, I will say, you know, I'm sitting here and this is the only mention I'm going to make of it on top of all the other mentions. And what I have on my desk actually is the February 2011 issue of Locus, which is the year in review issue from this, this year just gone, covering 2010. Mm-hmm. And we're about to do the 2011 issue, obviously, because we're going around on recommended reading and everything else. And Gary, our essays will be due soon. Oh, thank you for reminding me of that. I knew you'd be grateful. Um, and so if, if for no other reason, we should be off, and I'm sure Liza would be very happy to know this, off thinking about the things we should be talking about in our essays. 
let's go think about our essays, and at some point we can talk about those. Uh, Good idea. We'll have to drink more first. And on that, Thanks. take care, my friend. Talk to you next week. Okay. okay. All right. Bye. Bye.